Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Our focus will be verses 8 through 15 this morning. There really is no way for me to overemphasize how important it is for the church of Jesus Christ to become educated, informed, and familiar with who their Savior is and all his revealed fullness. I feel that the lack of effectiveness on the part of the church in this culture, which you can see all around, is due largely to the fact that we do not know our Savior well. We understand we are sinners. We hear the message of the gospel, and we respond to that by God's grace. But often we think that that's all there is to it. But he has saved us unto good works. He has saved us to make a difference. He has saved us to bring glory to himself in this world, in this culture. For this to happen, we must know our Savior better. Paul speaks exactly of the trial, the tribulation that all people of God would face. It speaks to how we can answer that. In fact, you know, the Colossians are not new. Uh, their experience is not unique. They lived in a day where there were competing philosophies, competing beliefs, all saying, believe in me, believe in me, or believe in whatever. But whatever you do, don't tell me what to believe in. Colossians dealt with it too. And Paul speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit in this way. Hear God's word, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful portion of your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to grasp uh, that we might be changed. Lord, we long to see people redeemed for your glory. Lord, at the same time, we recognize and confess that we probably don't know you well enough. I pray, Lord, that your word would be a powerful, powerful tool used this morning to deepen our understanding of who our Savior is and how this makes such a difference in the way we live our everyday life. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Certainly one of the biggest fears I think any parent has is to have their child abducted. You probably have seen those little video clips of, from service or uh, uh, security monitors that show in a department store, in a parking lot, all these different places. I've seen these things happen where a young child is grabbed up by a stranger and the parents are not that far off and yet the stranger manages to, to grab the child and, and go off with the child. I've seen this numerous times, I think, in our day. Also, I saw a news show once where they had a guy dressed up in stranger-like 
uh, stranger-like outfit, showed up at a playground and would get talking to kids that were separated from their parents. When I say separate, I mean only maybe 50 yards. The parents were sitting in a, at a picnic table or at a park bench and were able to have enough discussion with the child to lure the child away, and before you knew it, they were in a car. And after, they would go back to the parents and the children and say what happened. Some parents didn't even know what had happened, didn't even know their, their child was gone. Others had seen it happen but couldn't have stopped it had it been real. And they start talking, and the children knew better that is, the parents had been telling them, don't talk to strangers. Don't get close enough to someone who could grab you. Uh, don't get into this situation or that situation. Seen recently, the Internet has been used by predators for the same purpose. Uh, these are all things that are scary to us. They're sober. To be captivated by that against one's will and taken. Yet when Paul speaks in the terms he speaks, he uses language that is very similar to this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. In a, the same sober fashion, Paul speaks of the mind and heart of every person, in particular believers, that they would be guarded against being taken captive. Don't get too close. I mean, you could see it, but don't get too close. See to it that no one takes you captive. That means you've got to volitionally decide that you will not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. In fact, we must know and understand Christ in order to discern what we see and hear in this world. That, that's the basis for this first verse, verse 8. The rest will show us what we need to know so that when something isn't right, when something does not align with what is according to Christ, we can see it immediately. We know Christ so well that when we hear something or see something, we can immediately evaluate whether or not it's philosophy and empty deceit or not. Things are not all explicit. You know, we've recently come out of this hot political season where uh, issues like embryonic stem cell research, which are very black and white to most believers, as they should be. Uh, as much as I like Michael J. Fox's work, think some of it's funny, uh, he is captivated by philosophy and empty deceit. Christians should recognize this, not be angry with him, but recognize what he's captivated by and appreciate that that philosophy, that empty deceit, is what the enemy is. But in a more subtle way, we watch television all the time, movies all the time, feel-good movies, you know, that don't have any of the bad stuff in it, right? Well, are you analyzing it in such a way that you could see that most movies today celebrate what I call the big eye, which is us? It's equally philosophy and empty deceitfully driven because it glorifies man. Now, am I saying shield yourself? Don't let, No, I'm not saying I'm saying don't be captivated by it. Be careful to discern what is according to Christ and what is not. Christians must do this. In fact, we have to have a certain level of exposure so we can analyze it and say what it is so as to accent what the truth is. It's a matter of transformation of the culture itself by applying what is according to Christ to everything. Trying not to do so in an obnoxious way would certainly help us in the church, wouldn't it? But let's look at this passage more closely to see the competing worldview philosophies that Paul mentions here in verse 8. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Please notice immediately that philosophy and empty deceit, while not exactly synonymous, are put in the same level, so it's descriptive of what we would say uh, is one thought, philosophy and empty deceit, one worldview, you might say. Well, what is that worldview made of? according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So to define philosophy and empty deceit as Paul means it, 
we are referring to that which is driven by human tradition. It's according to the elemental principles, uh, the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Now, first of all, what is philosophy? Now, philosophy, the word itself, only means the love of wisdom. But philosophy on its own can become a religion. Uh, this, it's the field of study which people question and create theories about the nature of reality. That's the kind of philosophy Paul's speaking of, that which is not based on what is revealed by God's propositional truth, his revealed word. It's looking for answers outside of what God has revealed. That is a, a, a general way of thinking in terms of philosophy. What is deceptive philosophy? One version translates this, let no one take you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. The kind of philosophy that is driven by human tradition, the elemental uh, spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, that's what deceptive philosophy is. C.S. Lewis, who taught at Oxford and was a liter uh, literature teacher, even though he's given credit as a philosopher, he would not have liked that designation. He said this about the philosophy uh, that he was aware of in his day, and he got a lot of flack for this as a university professor. He said, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. But an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. He understood how foolhardy it was to search after something that did not have as its informant revealed truth, which God gives us. If, if you're trying to interpret the world without assistance from God, you will be, like one man describes a philosopher, a blind man in a dark cave searching for a black cat that isn't there. That's what a philosopher, apart from what is according to Christ, is. A blind man in a dark cave searching for a black cat that isn't there. Let's be clear in what these designations mean. What is human tradition then? This refers to experience that human beings have. Then passing that experience on as though it's normative and truth and authoritative to the next generation with no information from God on it. So one human being's experience is passed on. Think of all the unrighteous things that can be traded in, in cultures that, that develop apart from uh, a, a gospel witness, uh, perpetuated sin that happens, that becomes the norm in that particular culture. That's human tradition. In other words, an experience happens, it becomes normative and authoritative, and is never checked by that which is according to Christ. That's the kind of human tradition we're talking about. Tradition's not bad if it's according to Christ, or it's accenting Christ. It's human tradition that's based on ultimately glorifying humans and human experience. What are the elemental spirits of the world? Very simply, this is probably a reference to the shallow, superficial pantheon of gods that Greece and Rome had. Uh, this basic idea that everyone really knew, I mean, most people knew, was a superficial explanation or salve that people had for why things happened. When the weather was bad, this god was upset. When they lost this war, this other god was upset. If you analyze it very much, it didn't, up, it didn't hold up very well. The philosophers even understood that. In that way, it's elemental spirits. They, they don't go into eternity. They don't have deep significance. They're very superficial. They're very temporal. So do not be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit, which is based on human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world, and bottom line, not according to Christ. Well, how do we know what's according to Christ? We only know what's according to Christ based on his revealed word, the scriptures. 
Jesus speaks an endorsement of all the scripture that comes before him, and the scripture that speaks of him most directly in the gospel accounts are authoritative because of his commissioning them, uh, those people who wrote it, under the authority of the apostles that he gave, and then the, the books by the apostles and those sanctioned by the apostles that come after. So we have the scripture as God's divine revelation that helps us interpret everything, gives us what is according to Christ. What we really have in verse 8 are two different worldviews. Very simply, we have one that is Christian, according to Christ, one that is humanistic. Now you say, wait a minute. Humanism is that idea that man glorifies himself and that he all answers can be found in him. And you're probably thinking of the classical definition of humanism. I would expand it for our purposes and say, humanism is anything that believes in man instead of God, or ultimately man instead of God. I think Islam is humanistic. What do you mean? They believe in a supernatural? No, what they believe is, is that they can earn salvation. I think some forms of Christianity is very humanistic. The idea that man can somehow do something to ascribe himself to God. So it's Christian or it's humanistic. Those are the two worldviews. And humanistic can break down at all sorts of subcategories, but ultimately, if it's not according to Christ, it's according to human beings in some way, shape, or form. Even the, the forms that they would say are revelation from God, if you search them and study them and scrutinize them the same way we do the scripture, you'll find them to be human products. So we have two worldviews, very simply. One is Christian, according to Christ, as this passage says. The other is according or unto human beings. One author says it's well, well with regard to this concept of a worldview. A worldview is like a set of lenses which taint our vision or alter the way we perceive the world around us. Our worldview is formed by our education, our upbringing, the culture we live in, the books we read, the media and movies we absorb. For many people, their worldview is simply something they have absorbed by osmosis from their surrounding cultural influences. They have never thought strategically about what they believe and wouldn't be able to give a rational defense of their beliefs to others. This plagues the church today. It's not, again, saying that we bury our head in the sand. It says that we should be inculcating in ourselves and our children a Christian worldview that seeks to see everything according to Christ so that when they are confronted with something that is not, they see it immediately. And they're not only are they not shaken by it, they're challenged and they're actually aroused by it to show what the truth is. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the end result of, uh, of Paul's thought process here by the Holy Spirit. Charles Colson says, a worldview is the sum total of our beliefs about the world. James Cyrus says it's our set of presuppositions about the basic makeup of our world. Webster defines it as a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world. All this is true. The, what it should be true for you and I, though, is that it's according to Christ. And everything goes through that lens, through that filter. Paul is telling every believer, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, if we as believers have claimed to receive Christ, have received Christ, we must then know him well enough to discern what opposes him. I don't think that people are uh, purposely somehow opposing Christ, that the church is ineffective right now on purpose. I think it's just missed this very basic reality that we've got to know Christ better and better. It starts when he redeems us, but it never ends. And in that process, we come up against culture, and we're able to apply Christ to culture, and we're able to see change happen. But if we just stop saying, well, my sins are forgiven, and they'll go on kind of just willy-nilly, just open to anything that might possibly come, you're going to fall. You're going to get moved to and fro with every wind that comes. 
But as you know Christ better, all of a sudden your response to who Christ is becomes much more involved with just engaging that which you hear and seeing how to apply Christ to it. If we claim to have received Christ, we must know him well enough to discern what opposes him. The idea of receiving Christ I'm taking from Colossians 2.6, which we studied last week, as we have received him, so walk with him. Uh, We've accepted who Christ is in his totality, Lord and Savior. Now, we must know him well enough to discern what opposes him so that we are not taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Let's see how this happens. What will Paul tell us? Will he identify false teachings and what's wrong? Give us books on the cults? Give us books on analysis of culture? Will he give us all sorts of ideas as to how we can engage or have a study at borders or do whatever it is that we might do? Those things may have value. That's not what Paul does. Paul talks about Christ. He says, this is the answer to this. Know Christ. All your crafty arguments and slick ways of getting engaging people, those things may have some place somewhere, but if you don't go back to who Christ is, you're on the road to being held captive or you're not helping people be freed from what's captivating them. Let's look what it says. It's rich, it's deep, it's, 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 it's heavy. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Remember, we're looking to guide our lives according to Christ. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This, this one verse cancels out all other so-called experts. He is God, is what the text says. Why would you search anywhere else? Why would you ask Muhammad what he thinks? He's not God. You have direct access to God. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's no one else you could possibly want to ask anything of other than God himself. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. He is supreme. Absolutely. The text goes on in verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now now get this, that he is God himself and you as a person have been filled in him. Uh, that, that means that you have been made complete in him. That means you have been fulfilled in him. You have a personal relationship with God the Father through God the Son. He's not just anyone. He's a supreme being. He is the one who appoints all heads of authority, all rulers. And you have access directly to him. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, made complete, perfected by him. You have been filled in him is a phrase that simply refers to our position in Christ. We read in the affirmation of faith about our adoption. But there's so many other things. Adoption is that, I think, that one of the warmest benefits we have of being believers. We're adopted as sons and daughters. But there's so much more to what has happened to us. We've been forgiven our sins. We've been adopted. We've been declared righteous, justified. We're being sanctified. Eventually, we'll be glorified. The benefits seem to be never-ending. But this concept here, you have been filled in him, refers to your new position in Christ. Look at the passage with me again, 8 through 15, and notice a reoccurring theme or phrase. In the end of verse 8, according to Christ, the beginning of verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In verse 10, we've been filled in him who is the head of the rule of all rule and authority. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. At the end of that same verse, the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And verse 13, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In the end of verse 15, by triumphing over them 
in him. You have been filled in him, made complete by him who is God. Why would we even allow ourselves for a moment to be open to being captivated by empty, deceitful, hollow philosophy, no matter how popular it is at the given moment? Verse 11 and verse 12 could at first blush create some uh, interpretive problems. Let's look at it slowly and see what it says, because it tells us that we have been circumcised or baptized in or with him. Say what? Well, let's look at verse 11 and verse 12 slowly. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, this is obviously a reference to something that people would be familiar with, especially those who are Jewish there. Circumcision, the process of cutting away the male foreskin. What this was supposed to promote on, on the physical level was uh, the prevention of disease or infection. That was the reason uh, on a physical level one might undergo this without religious purpose involved. Uh, but this was given to the Jews as a sign to identify themselves with God for this reason. And it was practiced before the Jews started practicing this, for the reasons I mentioned. Uh, but the Jews were given it as a sign of their relationship with the God who redeems them. And it was a sign of taking away their old self, their old flesh, and making them new, giving them newness. That's what circumcision was meant to symbolize for the person in the church before the time of Christ. That's what circumcision was, and identifying with God, their Redeemer, who would clean them, who would put off their flesh, make them new. So now in that light, hear it again. In him you were also circumcised. So in Christ, you as a believer were circumcised, not literally, but with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ, for the believer, gives us newness, uh, takes away what is old and gives us cleanness. What does this mean for us today? Now that Christ has come in his full revelation, look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. There's a definite connection made between circumcision and baptism. I don't think this is the end all of the debate about circumcision and baptism being connected. But it's certainly strongly in favor of the idea that baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Now when a person is baptized, they are shown to be in relationship with or identified with God who is Redeemer. The one who washes their sins away. And here we have a connection Paul makes with an audience that would have understood this clearly. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here again, faith is shown as the powerful working of God. Not something that you mustered up, but you were raised with him through faith. The instrument God uses to raise you, which is the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Christ himself also the same power raises you to new life. All this is saying is that you have been identified with God the Redeemer by his work. You've been circumcised in that sense spiritually, having been buried with him now in baptism. All these things show what God has done on his own initiative so that when we are tempted, and I want you to think about it very practically, when you're tempted to be held captive by some other philosophy or empty, deceitful, uh, or hollow philosophy, stop to think of where your loyalties really ought to lie. Is it with this thing or this body of knowledge? Or is it with the one who has bought you with his own blood? And then reassess what it is that's tempting you at that moment, that thought process, that thing that's so popular in culture today. You know, a lot of times people will give me the, when I discuss this or argue this with moderns, they'll say, that's primitive what you're saying. 
just to make everything so simple as to this uh, humanism versus Christianity. It can't be that way. Look at the enlightenment we have. How could you possibly say this? And honestly, among other reasons that are rational that I think you can use to prove this, how well has modern philosophy worked for itself? How's it going, do you think? I mean, honestly, it hasn't worked at all. I mean, it's been an utter failure. Humanism has been nothing but a debacle. I mean, since we've accented humanism, more people have died in wars and atrocities than any other time in history. Since humanism was christened as its own new high form, almost a religion, it's been way worse for humanity. Way worse. Not even a close. So, primitive? No, I think timeless is the word. Timeless is what we're looking for. In Christ himself, without beginning is the one we look to. And he is the answer. According to Christ, that's how we assess everything that we take in with our eyes, ears, into our minds. But now it continues. It doesn't just stop here with what he has done for us. In verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Very simply, you were dead and you were given new life. Regenerated is the word. Given a generated life within you didn't do this, he did this. This is why we owe him our allegiance, because of what he has done. The root of humanistic work-based theology and philosophy comes from a denial of our true human condition apart from Christ. We are dead apart from Christ. We're not sick, we're not ill, we're not injured, we are dead. And he, according to this passage, makes us alive. Makes us alive. He gives us new life. Therefore, who should we serve? Only him. Only him. In verse 13, the last portion, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, he having forgiven us all our trespasses. You know how it is in human relationships, and I hope we don't all do this, but I think we probably all can point to a time where we did. I'll say sorry for a certain amount of stuff, but I'll hold one out on you. I mean, just when the right time, when I need it. You know, mostly you're forgiven, mostly you're accepted, but when the moment comes, I want to have this one in my back pocket to pull out on you. Praise God that he does not do this with us. All our trespasses. All still means all. All our trespasses in Christ. Why is this so? Well, because he's taken the record of debt that stood against us and nailed it to the cross. What does that mean? In those days, uh, unlike today where it's really not as shameful to be in debt, in those days, a person who was in debt had a piece of paper literally that was drawn up. They had to write it in their own handwriting what they owed. And it was put in a prominent location in the home or in the square. And that was their certificate of debt that showed what they owed. And oftentimes, as is the case, it got circular and they couldn't get out of it and get deeper and deeper. And it become pages. And it would be up there for everyone to see what it is that you owed. And if you died, it would be sometimes the case where your family had to take on that certificate after you until it was paid or against your household. And unless someone from the outside came and put an X on it and paid for it, you would have to owe for it. This is the symbolism used here when Paul says, the certificate of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Jesus takes and puts it on the cross and nails it there. So that anyone who comes to collect on you has to look at the fact that it's on the cross and it's paid for. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit when God has done so much to redeem you. He has disarmed 
and triumphed over all. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How is it, the commentators ask, how is it that he has triumphed over them? Well, certainly his work on the cross has given triumph, shown his lordship and supremacy all over all earthly rulers and authorities. But there's something more vivid here in all the minds of the original hearers for sure. The actual act of Christ on the cross reverses what the people who were crucifying him thought they were doing. Who crucified Jesus? The Romans and the Jews. Listen to what one commentator says when commenting on this verse, disarming the rulers and authorities. He says the rulers and authorities of Rome and Israel were the best government and the highest religion to the world at that point. They both conspired to put Jesus on the cross. These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. In one of his most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross, and moreover which shows in what physical uh, detail Paul could envisage the horrible death that Jesus died, he declares that on the contrary, on the cross, God was actually stripping them naked and holding them up to public contempt and leading them in his own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. Do you see what he's doing? He's actually using military language to describe what Christ actually did on the cross. The language is what a Roman general did when they won a war. He would go against any modern war law we have, but it was effective. When they conquered someone, they stripped the rulers naked, put them on a chain, and ran them all the way back to Rome. They built big arches. As they knew the months before the army was returning with those vanquished opponents, humiliated for everyone to see and their weapons on display, all stripped of all their royal regalia. They're coming back to Rome now, stripped of all of that. No more authority. And the Roman general stands in victory. It acts as a deterrent. It acts to glorify himself and all the things. And here that same language is used. Uh, Jesus, of Jesus, disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. And he does it in exactly the opposite way the world would say you would do it. He does it by going to the cross and actually strips them as he gives the ultimate, ultimate payment, perfect payment for the salvation of his people. The same commentator says, when the powers had done their worst, crucifying the Lord of glory on the charge of blasphemy or in rebellion, they had overreached themselves. He, neither, he is neither a blasphemer nor a rebel. He was instead, in fact, their rightful sovereign. They thereby were exposed for what they were, usurpers of the authority which was properly his. The cross, therefore, becomes the source of hope for all who have ever been held captive under their rule, enslaved in fear and mutual suspicion. Christ breaks the last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on their behalf. In this light, brothers and sisters, what is your worldview? Be honest about it. What is your worldview? How has it been affected by philosophy and empty deceit? See to it that no one takes you captive. I would like to have everyone memorize Colossians 2, 8 through 15. I won't call you all to see if you've done it, but I trust that you will take this as a, an assignment. In the next three weeks, and starting today, we will recite this together as a congregation. I want everyone to take that insert home and memorize these verses. Let's say this in closing together in unison. We'll read it together and commit this to memory each day. Kids, you all have even better memories than us. I want to see you all. Let me know that you memorize Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Okay? Kids, I'll look up. You all going to memorize this? No, 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 no shaking no. You got to shake yes, elder's daughter. You've got to shake your head yes. <laughs> In all seriousness, it is my prayer that as you, uh, this is part of your heart, that you would start looking at the world or continue to start looking at the world through 
this concept according to Christ. Let's say this together in closing. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we desire to do all things according to Christ. Please, Lord, make this so in our lives. Help us to quit worrying about what everyone in the world thinks and, and care so much more about the one who gave his own life's blood for us. Thanks. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.